For seven weeks throughout October and November, Erica and I will be traveling across the U.S. recording a web series called Untethered on the Road, sponsored by portable power company Tilt, T-Y-L-T. You can follow along by checking into Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Tilt Products, that's T-Y-L-T, or head to Tilt.com. And be sure to come back later in the year at Tilt Products on YouTube and check out the video web series following our adventures across the country. And now we return to your regularly scheduled programming. Hashtag live untethered. Everybody, welcome to episode 40 of the Go Good Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Erica and I are still traveling across the United States, and we are currently in Munising, Michigan, staying or mooching, as it were, off of fellow Butcher Bird partner, Michael Schlain, who happens to be in the area working on a screenplay. And he and I ran through portions of Michigan today looking at potential shooting locations for the future. If you are interested in following along with Erica and I's trip, which will continue through the end of November, so for a few more weeks, you can keep up with us on Instagram. We post at least one image in a little story each day. So look for HG Kitty Cat, Kitty with a K, Cat with a K to follow Erica. And look for Fortune Again, F-O-U-R-C-H-I-N-N-I-G-A-N to keep up with what I'm doing while we are on this ridiculously long road trip. On today's show, we have self-proclaimed outdoor dilettante, Lauren Grabowski. She hails from Philadelphia, where they are well known for the Grabowski Shuffle, which you can easily find on YouTube. She is a cyclist, bike packer, urban planner, world traveler, someone who's lived abroad, a bit of a mountaineer. So she and I sat down just a couple of months ago in Marsh Park slash Rattlesnake Park, right along the edge of the LA River in one of those rare sections where it looks like a river and not like a ditch culvert. And we discussed all of these things, including a very well-intentioned Marine who attempted to use dead puppies as a means of bringing her happiness. So without further ado, let's get to Lauren Grabowski. Lauren Grabowski, and 
I would describe myself as an outdoor dilettante because I just dabble in a little bit of everything. I have no real expertise, but I love to bike in the outdoors and in the city. I like urban road cycling. I like off-roading in the mountains. I love kayaking. I love mountain climbing. I like winter mountaineering. I love skiing. <laughs> and I like trying new things. I've tried some fly fishing and sailing this summer. So, and I love plant identification. I like hiking and backpacking. I like everything. Oh, and canyoneering. That's how I met you. <laughs> I just want to know how many people listening right now are looking up dilettante in the dictionary. <laughs> Five seconds into this thing and I already don't know what she's talking about. So you like everything. I really like trying new things too. And I like exploring. I'm not a thrill seeker. I just want to get out there and explore new places and new things. So you're not into the adrenaline stuff? You're not going to start getting into base jumping? And <laughs> Maybe, but... Like extreme catfish <laughs> fishing or something? <laughs> Only if it's like, you know, a new experience. <laughs> do you know Do you know what I'm talking about, the extreme catfish thing? It's a thing. It's, I don't, I know, I don't know if it. they call it this, <laughs> but I know about this because a buddy of mine that fishes a fair amount mentioned this. Apparently, they had some fishing TV show that did it. It's where people fish for catfish with their bare hands. So they like go out into a river and find an area where there's like, like maybe a hole. I, I doubt it's actually in New Orleans, <laughs> but in the South, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they shove their arms into the holes and yank out the catfish. And I don't know if you know this, but catfish, you got like sharp parts. I would totally do that. <laughs> yeah, I would I don't try know. it once. <laughs> you might get the crap bit out of you if you did. So I've already derailed us. So let's get back to you and not extreme catfish. I, I, I hope somebody writes in and tells me if there is actually a term. It's probably like bare hand catfishing or, or something like that. So you would try that. Okay. So you will do thrilling things. You just don't necessarily seek them. I'm not doing it for the thrill. I'm you seek doing novelty. It for- yeah, exactly. I understand that. I know exactly what you're talking about because sometimes I'll start to get into something and then I'll start to get really bored with it. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, eh, this isn't as fun as I remember it being. Maybe I should do a different thing now. All right. So you like everything. I do. How did you get into everything? Did you grow up in one of those families that like went camping all the time and your dad pulled you up mountains? I know you grew up in Philadelphia. Philadelphia suburbs. Very, very suburban. Um, there's some farmland around. And I've kind of heard you say this on previous episodes. I grew up in one of those families that was afraid of everything. I think that's probably 85 to 95% of families. Exactly. Yeah. I had the misfortune of having wonderful, loving parents who wanted me to be safe and protected. I wanted to get out there and explore. And there really weren't a lot of opportunities in the like suburban neighborhood where I grew up. There was this little patch a forest that was sort of near like a drainage basin and I would go wandering in this little patch of woods and look at the trees and splash in the stream and dream of being in like real forests and mountains. And then you'd hear a frog croak and you'd haul ass back to your house and cry <laughs> and hug your mom and, and, and ask her to protect you, right? No, I'd bring the frog home and watch her scream. <laughs> I don't know how it was in Philadelphia, but in Louisiana, we got lots of poisonous snakes they'd occasionally come in the yard and and frogs would get in the house and gigantic cockroaches would get in the house you got any of that over in philadelphia no the gosh the only thing that's going to kill you is the cheesesteaks if you eat enough of them (laughs) it's pretty safe there (laughs) so if your family was afraid of everything but you were interested in exploring everything did you clash 
Or did they kind of accept that you were into those things and support you? Or was it a big uphill battle? You know, the answer is actually neither. I just sort of did what they said and quietly bided my time and just stayed in my room and read a lot of books until I was an adult. And then I was like, all right, I'm out of here. <laughs> I think they didn't really know it hit them. I, was, I went off to college, um, off to New Hampshire, which isn't really that far. And they were supportive, but um, I think they wished... I had been a little bit closer, but I wanted to go off to where there were mountains. There was the Appalachian Trail. It had the oldest outdoor club in the country. That was sort of like, okay, I've been waiting for this. I've been dreaming of mountains and nature since I was a kid, and this was my big chance to to start. I didn't go backpacking or even hiking until I was 18. Were you a dilettante at this point, or you were on your (laughs) way to becoming the dilettante? I, I actually probably became a dilettante pretty on in school because I wanted to try everything. So I was like signing up for kayaking. I was in the climbing gym. I was canoeing, climbing mountains. You know, it was really intimidating. I got thrown into the deep end because there were a lot of really impressive, accomplished outdoors people. I remember signing up for some hikes. There's a 50 mile hike. You hike 50 miles in one day, 24 hours. You need to do it. And you yeah, have to That sign. is a long distance. It was a long day and I wasn't very experienced, but I went for it. I was in a group with Nordic skier, a mountain biker, and then this like girl who just, she seemed really sweet. And then I found out later on she was the youngest person to ever climb Denali. <laughs> so how did you end up in this group? I was friends with the uh, the mountain cyclist. So you you have to sign him as a group. And he's like, oh, join the group. And I'd really been wanting to do this hike. It sort of has a reputation. It's just once a year. So he invited me and she got pulled into the group. And I was like, what have I just signed up for? Where Where is this 50-mile hike? Depending on the terrain, mm-hmm. 50 miles could feel like 50 miles or it could feel like 300 miles. Sure. It was along the Appalachian Trail. I don't know the total elevation gain of the hike. I don't think it's quite as drastic or dramatic as anything in the Sierras. But we were... We summited a few smaller peaks, um, but it started in Hanover, New Hampshire, and went to Mount Musilak. And how did it go? I did it. (laughs) I was definitely the weakest link in that group, but they were great. They were really supportive. Um, I finished it, and I was on crutches the week afterward because my knee was so swollen. Yeah, how long did it take you to do that? It took me like 22 hours. There's people who run it, a lot of people who just are really experienced hikers um, who I think do it in 10 hours, possibly even less. We were kind of taking our time. They were having fun. They were being really supportive of me. So 20, 22 hours. And then you came back for more? After after <laughs> 50 miles and 22 hours, you didn't turn around and go back to mom and dad and say, you were right all along. Let's just watch movies and eat popcorn. Well, it's funny because every time I try an ambitious new endeavor, there's always this moment where I'm like, I'm never going to do that again. And then you always come come back for more. If you if you ever think, I'm never going to do this again, and you really never do it again, it must have really been a terrible experience. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I've had any of those. Yeah, I always end up coming back for more. <laughs> so you got mixed up in this group of people who are like the upper echelon of their respective activities. And you did this 50-mile, 22-hour hike with them. Did they do it in 22 hours as well? Like, did you all they, have to we, go together? We all pretty much hung 
song together. The girl, Merrick, who was the youngest person to summit Denali, she, by the end, I think was a little antsy to get going. She, she kind of ran the last couple miles, but they were all champs. You know, and this was just one of, like, many, many trips I did while I was up in New Hampshire. I was always really intimidated by the people there. I still, even now, I look at some of my friends from college, and they're climbing Denali on their own, unguided. Um, the one guy is, like, he, like, shows up in my, like, Net Geo Instagram, like, climbing with Fernand Osterk. So there were some pretty accomplished people that it almost kind of, like, intimidated me as to, like, how I saw myself fitting in. So it was like you got thrown in with the outdoor equivalent of the, the like, cool jocks. <laughs> and you were the ponytail glasses girl that was sneaking in. <laughs> Hoping nobody noticed. You know, it's funny you should say that because I because that's exactly what it was. I feel like these days I'm I've come a long way since then, and I'm finding myself on the other side of that equation, where I've kind of progressed a lot in my outdoor activities and I have a lot of friends who prefer car camping or a day hike they want to go with me and it's like this balancing act of like okay I want to hang out with my friends but you want to make sure they can hang that they're going to be safe that they're not going to be overwhelmed and you know you want to pursue your own goals so yeah I think there's always this like balancing act among people who are ambitious in the outdoors of you know when do you do an activity so you can just sort of like enjoy it with the people you care about and when are you really like challenging yourself and being that like that jock that's going you know going for the achievement it's tricky isn't it because the people that are outside of the community they t- they tend to have like a completely inaccurate idea of what it's like they either imagine you do things like ten times more extreme. Yeah. Or whatever term you want to use, then you do, or they completely underappreciate it and yes. think, like, oh, yeah, I'll go with you. I'll go do that. And you're like, what? Do you know how to do this, this, and this? Oh, I'll, f- I'll figure it out. No, <laughs> no, you won't figure it out there. Exactly. It, I honestly, it's something I encounter on every trip I go on because, you know, I, I'm a dilettante. I'm always doing different activities with different people. And, you know, sometimes I'm the weakest link. I'm the one trying to keep up and I, I'm, I'm trying to learn. And I don't want to hold everyone back and then there's other times where you know I've organized trips and I don't know how to say no (laughs) but you know they're gonna struggle I organized this Death Valley bike tour it was really awesome but there was someone on the trip who wanted to go and I said you can go but I I'd really like it if you do x y and z to like sort of train for it because it's 4,000 feet of climbing which isn't yeah, I mean, it's all relative, but that's pretty challenging. It's not something the average person can just hop on their bike. I'm not much of a cyclist, so okay. it'd be pretty be pretty hard for me, probably. It's And in Death Valley, too, you know, you're dealing with the elements. And she didn't have time to train. <laughs> she didn't train. And so she showed up. And I've been that person a million times before. I ended up walking with her up this hill in Death Valley for a good portion of the trip. I'm glad she came. Like, I think she had a great time. It's always this challenge. It's a balance because you want to introduce other people to the things and and you remember the time when you were that person and you want to help them move past being that person as well. But then, like you said, you need to focus on your own pursuits to a certain degree. And then also you have to kind of look at your friends and gauge where you think they fall and you might be completely wrong. Yeah. So I've definitely gone with people where I've like expected more from them mm-hmm. and then where I expected nothing and then they delivered far more than, yeah. than I would have anticipated or they were so much more adept at something than I would have thought they would have been. Honestly, that's one of the things I really love the most out of 
trips is sort of looking at the group dynamics. Like Harvard Business School actually studies mountaineering trips and evaluates like what went wrong, what happened with leadership, where was there a breakdown in communication. And after all of my trips, like... You, you write to Harvard Business Review after all of your trips and pass on that information? Exactly. Are you a Harvard Business mole in the outdoor community? Is that what you're revealing? Well, I, I'm an urban planner and a lot of it is working on teams. A lot of it's communicating with very different groups of people. And I like to reflect on my experiences about what was my role? What what went wrong? What What are my weaknesses in communication? And I see a lot of parallels between how I interact with groups in the outdoors and how I interact with people in my job. Yeah, I kind of feel like if, if you can take people out into uncomfortable, kind of potentially dangerous situations and everyone can gel and get together, then you sure as hell should be able to work together <laughs> in, in less strenuous circumstances. It's really funny too. There's some people who are like, they're great friends. I could, you know, sit around and get lost in endless conversations about nothing all day. And like, I do not want to be in a dangerous situation with them. There's just, we just can't communicate in a way that we're you know, accomplishing things. Um, but it's been easy. It's been really interesting to look at trips that haven't gone the way I intended or hoped, but to see like, when were we able to work together successfully to get out of a bad situation? And when did I just need to get the hell out of there? So you threw another term out that maybe people don't really understand. You said you're an urban planner. Oh, yes. So why don't you explain to people what that means? It means you ride your bike all over Los Angeles. (laughs) Pretty much. How I wish. What is an urban planner? So you don't know either. No, I don't. (laughs) It's good. It's like when people ask me what I do for a living, and then I either have to give them just a quick nothing answer that doesn't really mean anything, or try to explain to them. Yeah, now I've put you in that exact predicament. Okay, so fun fact, podcast listeners, every city is required to have a plan. It's basically like the Constitution for the city. My role in many cases is to help write these plans and help write policy and they guide the future development of the city. My specialization, I love cycling, so a specialization I've been trying to carve out for myself is pedestrian and bicycling in cities and focusing on the public health impacts. But it's funny, the, the reason I sort of got into it, it, it really overlaps with I think my my interest in the outdoors. After college, I worked for the University of Alaska and was really interested in environmental work. Alaska is a very, very political place. I think I had this idea that I'd be out there like communing with nature, um, and I certainly did my fair share of that. But for the most part, I just got really interested in all these different groups that were sometimes cooperating, sometimes fighting with, with natural resource issues. And that got me interested in how our cities work and I think that the best way to protect our wilderness honestly is to design efficient healthy cities. Maybe I'll turn out to be wrong in the long run but I definitely feel like there is a trend towards cities and say wilderness starting to converge so that more of the wilderness comes back into the city because we realize surrounding ourselves in concrete is not necessarily the best way to proceed forward. Yeah, it's actually really great to hear that you see that too. I wasn't sure if that was kind of just something I noticed because those are the two worlds I'm constantly 
negotiating, but I, it's something I've definitely seen. And it's there's so much of this, like the people going out into the wilderness and being like survivor man. And I'm really interested in like the nature coming back into the city. Um, my friend runs the citizen science program at the Natural History Museum, and she works with. There's this really cool podcast called, um, or sorry, not podcast. This is the cool podcast. There's this really cool. This, this podcast is so cool. <laughs> there's this really cool app called iNaturalist, and she gets people in the city to like photograph flora, animals, nature, and identify it. And they've identified new species. It's just sort of this way of documenting how nature is coming back into the city. It's yeah, there's definitely a trend toward that. And also, it's it's really cool to see cities building connections so that people can get back into nature. We talked about, like, the L.A. River, and there's a... Which we're sitting near right now, next to the part that looks like a forest and not, like, a concrete ditch. <laughs> They've done a lot of improvements. There's actually people, I don't know if you saw right down there, they're actually fishing. So there's people fishing in the L.A. River. Um, they have a new kayaking program, so people can go out and kayak it. And it's, you know, right here in the middle of Los Angeles, where I don't think people typically think of as a place for kayaking and fishing. What I think we do as humans is we react to something and we overreact. And then we notice years later that we overreacted when we see the repercussions of that overreaction. So then we tend to overreact in the opposite direction. And then we have to balance out for that overreaction. And so what we always are doing is just bouncing back and forth between extremes getting closer to some sort of middle, central, sensible place. And so from what I understand about this river, and you probably know a lot more about it than I do, is it was one of those seasonal rivers that didn't necessarily Mm -hmm. follow a specific course every Mm -hmm. year. So it caused lots of flooding problems. So the solution was, well, let's constrain it into an area we could control, which eventually became concrete ditches, essentially. Yes. And then at some point people realize that's not a great way to maintain a river, nor very beautiful place to live. That's exactly right. And that's the problem with it is that it has a cement bottom and we're just like washing all of this fresh water that, you know, originates in the mountains, right? Flushing it right into the ocean. So, you know, I think it makes sense that they want to control the flood plane but yeah you're totally right the pendulum swinging back and forth and I think they're moving closer toward getting the LA River right. I imagine to a certain degree your job is to try to control the course of that pendulum. Exactly Um, and it's again it's really interesting to hear you have a similar perspective on that. I wasn't sure if it was only I saw the pendulum because of the work that I do but yeah I'm very aware planning long term you know I see us moving towards urbanization I see us moving towards you know connections with nature and I want to make sure we don't get really like focused on these trends but we see the bigger picture and anticipate what could be the problems with doing something like that the problem with fixing the LA River is it could lead to displacing a lot of people who live in the affordable areas around it. If this becomes this beautiful, attractive river, there's going to be a lot of beautiful, attractive, expensive housing that goes along with it. So you want to kind of, yeah, keep your eye on that pendulum. I think something that we absolutely need to do in Los Angeles is make sure that housing becomes more expensive. (laughs) So whatever we can do to make sure that happens. (laughs) We can all gentrify nature and move out into the mountains. (laughs) So we went from 50 mile... Hike in college, right? (laughs) Yes. To urban planning. So now we've covered all of your life and we're done. 
Oh, oh, there's a lot in between. <laughs> I went from, let's see, and I had a lot of adventures in New Hampshire, but then, yeah, then I moved to Alaska. So what brought you to Alaska? Because it's Alaska. <laughs> I mean, really, did you just move there because you wanted to live there, or was Pretty there much. something that brought you there? Pretty much. I wanted an adventure. I was considering international work or Peace Corps. International development is still an interest of mine, and... I keep talking about politics. Politically, I'm a little bit ambivalent about inflicting myself on the developing world until I know a lot more. And I'm like, I don't know anything. I should kind of focus on issues in the United States until I know more. So I went to the University of Alaska to work on environmental issues and, and to my surprise, became interested in urban issues as a result of the connection I saw between, you know, the urban world and, and the wilderness and environment. But yeah, I, I just wanted an adventure. <laughs> my parents would have killed me if I became a ski bum. <laughs> so how long did you live in Alaska? I lived there for two years and I miss it all the time. So why did you leave? I don't know. Um, it's a big world. It's a big world. I was really happy there, but I'm not someone who's going to pick happy. I'm going to pick interesting and there's so many things I wanted to see and do. Yeah, I lived in New York and China after that and just have done and experienced so many interesting things that I don't think I would have been able to do if I just stayed in Alaska being happy. <laughs> so you went from Philadelphia to New Hampshire. Yeah. You shot as far away <laughs> that, as you could and still be in the U.S. without going to an island. You went to Alaska. And then you went to New York from there? Yeah, and then I was in Brooklyn. And then you said, to hell with this, I'm going to move to China? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> I worked in Brooklyn. I was um, like so many foolish ingenues. <laughs> oh, ingenue, dilettante. <laughs> uh, I wanted to work in publishing. It's um, a great industry. Yeah, exactly. Er Erica manages to still <laughs> exist working in publishing, but not many people do. That's why I didn't last. Um, it was really, I, you know, and living in New York was the first time I really lived in like a huge city. I spent some time in Barcelona in school, but just being around like, gosh, you know, all these different cultures, so many different people to help me become different, more open person. Publishing didn't turn out the way I had envisioned, but New York was an amazing experience. And then you took off to China. Yeah, why not? <laughs> so what'd you do in China? What brought you to China? Because China's, I would imagine, although one of the members of ButcherBird lived in China and did this, I would imagine it's difficult to just say, well, I'll just move to China and figure it out because the language is different, the yeah. writing is different, the culture is different, the distance from you and everyone you know is yeah. enormous. So what brought you to China, and did you just move there and say, oh, I'll figure it out? There's a little bit of planning, but for the most part, <laughs> I had been accepted into grad school for urban planning, and I wanted to move to China because it's where the urbanization action is going on. It's the fastest urbanizing country in all of history, actually. And so I, like, listened to some podcasts, like everyone should, some Mandarin podcasts. I'm going to have this translated into Mandarin <laughs> for all of my Chinese listeners. Um, and I found a Chinese girl to practice Mandarin with so I could, like, get by once I arrived. I spent, like, six months, and I took some language classes while I was there, and then I traveled around a lot, went on some really interesting hikes. 
um, some climb some cool mountains. Uh, and the one thing I was hoping to get out of it is that my university would let me return there to do urban planning research. And that kind of worked out because when I went to school, they were like, oh, yeah, we've never sent anyone to China because it's way too hard. And it's just a hard place for someone to just drop in and do research. But they were like, you've actually lived there. You speak some of the language. We'll let you go. <laughs> so I got to return for another six months and I did research on you know, again, something that I think kind of still continues to inform my life today is the urban fringe. So where the rural area meets the urban area in China, where all the rural immigrants come and like where the city edge kind of spans out. It is a fascinating place. You mentioned that China is kind of this growing, booming place. I guess it's been like two or three years ago now that we had a job where we were working as like story consultants with a company in China. And so they sent part of their team here to work with us. They sent like maybe four or five people. So we expect, you know, four or five Chinese people to show up. It was British people, (laughs) maybe an Italian person, like not a single Chinese person. And what had happened was these people realized like, hey, there is way more opportunity in China than there is in all our own European countries. And they moved to China so that they could be successful in their career fields. Was this in Shanghai? I mean, they came here. I don't remember oh, okay. where they were coming um, yeah, from. That, it's funny because every different part of, you know, it's a massive country. And Shanghai tends to be where there's the expats that go for um, opportunities with their career. Yeah, That's probably where it was then. Yeah. Beijing is where people go to have fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> not that kind of fun. <laughs> Um, there's the, it's the center of government, so there's a lot of interesting things going on with policy there. So, again, when I was in Beijing, I got interested in, like, all the environmental stuff that's going on there, which was really cool. So, at some point, you ended up in Los Angeles. So, did you leave China and come to Los Angeles? I was in California for grad school, and that's sort of what brought me here. And I, I chose to come out to California to study because... I wanted to be by the mountains. I wanted to be on the West Coast. I was kind of done with New York. You know, California is amazing. It's just a short drive to desert, mountains, ocean, everything. How long have you been here now? Let's see. I just came up on four years in L.A. So you're getting close to the point where you need to move to a new a new place? I know, right? <laughs> where, where are you eyeballing next? Bosnia? <laughs> I'd love to go to Africa, but I don't know. Actually, I... It's funny, especially as an outdoorsy person, Los Angeles is the last place I ever thought I'd call home, and I'm just kind of madly in love with the city. It's, it has everything. It reminds me a little bit of like New York and Beijing. It's chaotic, there's diverse people, and it reminds me, honestly, a little bit of like Alaska, because I have the Sierras right there, and when you're there, you feel like you're, you're in the wilderness. So I feel like I get a little bit of everything here. Yeah, and it is true that you really are a drive from pretty much anything yeah. that you could want to do with with a few exceptions. Other than living everywhere, you also do a little bit of traveling from time to time. Like I know you just came back from Costa Rica. I did. So what brought you to Costa Rica? I wanted to ride my bike around Cuba, but I got a little wigged out by hurricane season. So Costa Rica had cheap tickets. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll go to Costa Rica. It's kind of bougie. <laughs> <laughs> 
next time I'm going to like going to go to Nicaragua with a machete or something. <laughs> like I traveled around Honduras and it was, you know, I like kind of a, an, I like an adventure and I was trying to have an adventure and I did, but everyone there was like in pearl earrings and pretty dresses and like, who's this weird girl like on a bicycle? <laughs> what part of Costa Rica were you in? Um, I went up to Monte Verde um, and the rain, you know, Hiking through the rainforest in the rain, looking at all the different flora was just incredible. But there's just like signs everywhere for canopy tours and, you know, repelling down waterfalls. And it's just like not my style to like pay these, you know, guys. I mean, I, you know, I did it. You have to. You're there. But I kind of just like to be off the beaten path a little more. And then I went down to the beach on like the Nicoya Peninsula and biked along the beach and some ATV trails along there. And... Then I ended up shooting over to, um, what is it, Chiripo, the national park that's like the highest peak in Costa Rica. And when you hike to the top, I had like an awesome hike. You could see like shooting stars and lightning all along the horizon. And when you get to the peak, you can see the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean on each side. So it was pretty rad. But it was like $80 to get into that park. I was like... (laughs) What the heck? <laughs> so we didn't have it in Nicaragua. <laughs> when I was in Costa Rica earlier this year, and what I learned is you probably were able to get around on your bike as quickly as you would have by car. Because to drive from one side of Costa Rica to the other, which is not a very large nation, yeah, it's like a five or six hour drive to travel, what, like 100, 200 miles? So, so you were probably passing up all the cars on the road. Well, I typically would have, but all of my trips, something always goes wrong. So I got food poisoning, you know, which nice. nobody but me gets in Costa Rica. Where did you get it? <laughs> Either these vegetables I picked up from the market, or can you get it from like a coconut you find on the beach? Possibly. Well, I was going to ask you if you got it near the ocean. I found a coconut and it looked really good. <laughs> <laughs> but were you near the ocean? So yeah, you were near the ocean? I was near the ocean. Because... When when I uh, when I was there, that was what they said is water safe to drink most everywhere in Costa Rica. But if you're near the ocean, you may want to drink bottled water just because you might not be accustomed to it, or it'd be more likely to be contaminated or something. Well, I was contaminated, <laughs> so I'm trying to bike to like Montezuma. Oh, how appropriate! Yeah, <laughs> and. I'm like violently vomiting and I'm just like, okay, this is going to work out somehow. And I'm, it's getting dark and there's no lights and the road's like all potholes and gravel and like scary cars are passing by. And then this dude pulls up on a moped and he's like, sees me, sees that I have no lights. I would have gotten there on time if I hadn't been violently ill. And he's like, bike in my light. I'll make sure you get into town safely which was so nice like when you travel you always meet you know some of the nicest people so he kind of helped guide me into town I don't know what I would have done if he hadn't stopped and he like takes me to this hotel which is you know some guy's house with some rooms and the guy sees me vomiting and he like goes and gathers some herbs and makes <laughs> did a he, special did he hold your hair for yeah. you? <laughs> he made this special herbal tea with herbs that he just like picked off some trees so that was that was pretty special. <laughs> I like that you said that when you travel, you always meet the nicest people because I think the assumption from people who don't travel is the opposite. Yeah. That if you travel, you're going to meet murderers and rapists Yeah. and people that want to take advantage of you. And granted, there will be some of those people yes. from time to time, but more often than not, you're going to meet people who 
want to help you out or yeah. think it's interesting that you're doing something and they want to live vicariously through you for a moment. Yeah, people think it's kind of strange when I, when I travel alone, but honestly, most of my friends I wouldn't want to go gallivanting around the developing world with. Well, I hope all your friends are listening right now and they're like, uh, fuck her. <laughs> they know my travel style. They're like, no way, I'm going to the beach. You know, and I've traveled with people and have had you know, an awesome time. But like when I was in Honduras, I met up with friends. We had a really interesting time where like our car broke down. That's another story. But like when I went off on my own, people just come up and say, hi, I've had people invite me to stay at their homes. Um, I tried to climb the tallest mountain in Spain. This is when I was in school. It was one of my first like climbing trips and I had no idea what I was doing I show up in the small town and like the locals are like are you kidding me like the trailhead's like an hour's drive away and I was like I don't know I was gonna try to climb to the top and so they like threw me in their car drove me to the trailhead and they're like we'll hike up to the top with you and they let me stay at their house so people are ridiculously nice and I always try to like pay it forward whenever I find anyone passing through LA asking for directions I'm I kind of always go out of my way to help them out. If, if you see people puking, do you, <laughs> like, do you hold back their hair and make herbal concoctions for them? Because you owe them that now. So you are a dilettante that likes everything, but it sounds like you have a particular penchant for cycling. Absolutely. So what's that about? Why do you like that so much? What's so uh, great about being on a bike? What isn't so... Why wouldn't anyone just spend all their time on a bike? Why a bike? Why not rollerblades? Oh, why really? not roller skates instead? Why not ice skates? What, what brings you to a bike? Why not a motorcycle or, or a Formula One race car? So bicycles have, since their invention, have sort of been a symbol of freedom, I think. Wait, what year were they invented? Um, in, <laughs> it, it seemed like you were trying to think of the time when they were invented and then realized you shouldn't say it because you'd be wrong. <laughs> there's, there's all these quotes of like, you know, I think it actually coincided with like first wave feminism and all your podcast listeners just turned it off. <laughs> I, I'm sure that people who listen to this podcast respect women and Love. think they should have all the same rights as men do. Love first wave feminism, which coincided with the invention of the bicycle and a lot of women felt that bicycles were a symbol of freedom. That's why I wanted a bicycle in Costa Rica. It was a great way to get around. Just like you said, I pass by cars all the time. I get to work faster on my bike. So you just feel, you just feel freer. You're not separated from your environment as well. That's one thing I don't like about traveling in a vehicle. If the windows are up, you're essentially separate from everything you're driving through. You can look through a window, a piece of pane of glass and see it, but you're not... Well, unless it smells really bad. You're not smelling it. You're not feeling it. You're not experiencing it as if you were there. I'm about to do this big road trip, and I'm a little worried that we're going to be in the car more often than not because I really like to be able to stop and then just soak in a place instead of... A lot of people say, like, oh, yeah, I've been there. And what they mean is I drove through there for five minutes, and I looked at it, and I took a picture, and I was there. Yeah, I feel like bikes are kind of the perfect speed to experience the world. Walking, of course, is amazing, too. But if you're going on a big trip, you can kind of cover a lot of ground, but you're still going slowly enough and like you said you're kind of exposed so you feel like you're really interacting with your environment it's simplicity it's much simpler than a car much more elegant and so it's something I think almost anybody can do and there's this whole like individual and group aspect to it where I do a lot of group bike rides that's how I learn to feel comfortable biking in urban areas and so you can be with your friends but you're also you know doing your own thing and pushing yourself 
So I like that aspect a lot too. Do you tend to mostly road bike or are you all around cyclists, mountain biking and everything else? I will off road, but I don't have like a mountain bike with suspension. I have what's called, it's, it's actually not technically a fat tire. It's like, I call it a semi-fat tire because it's like three inches wide, but I've done off-roading on that, but there's no suspension on it. There's, I feel like that's kind of like a new sort of weirdish trend in cycling where people will ride road bikes or what's called a cross, a cross bike. It's kind of like a hybrid style bike. And again, there's no suspension. So you're like on a, usually like a a steel frame, sometimes a carbon frame bike and just going off road. And when I, you know, when you're doing that, you end up, you know, your wrist, your hands, you can feel it. It's really like jilting you around. Yeah. I I shy away a little bit from like the technical single track, maybe one day, but I just like kind of getting out there and exploring. You, You cycled all over Costa Rica and then you said you've cycled through Death Valley. So it sounds like what you really like to do is kind of travel from one location to another by bike. Oh, yeah, exactly. I don't want to just, like, go around and do a, a lap or whatever. Um, I mean, I do that sometimes to train. There's a cycling, a women's cycling group that I ride with, and that's good for getting kind of fit. And, again, it's a social aspect, but I definitely prefer, I love just traveling through space, <laughs> seeing new destinations. And L.A. is great. It's, you know, it's such a big city that you can kind of take trains or transit out to certain points and a lot of the people I bike with, we plan these routes where you take the metro out and then you can kind of like bike out into, you know, the Mojave, the desert, the mountains and make a loop and then head back into the city. So when you travel around on these bikes, a lot of times you're, these are overnight trips, right? So you yeah. need to stop somewhere. So do you tend to stop in, say, a hostel or a hotel or do you tend to camp or a bit of both? I'd What's what Never. It's called credit card camping. I totally <laughs> look down on that. <laughs> but it's cool if anyone else wants to do it. <laughs> no, I think it's way more fun to be like self-sufficient. And you know, and then there's different levels of self-sufficiency. Like there's like bike touring with the paneers, and a lot of times people who are like biking around the world have like front paneers and rear paneers. Paneers are like the bags you hang on your bike. Saddlebags. Yeah. Well, saddlebags actually different. Like there's oh, like really? yeah, so Paneers are bags you can't, you know, that hang on the sides. The saddlebag fits under your saddle. And the kind of, you know, it's really only come out in the past few years, and I've gotten more into it as opposed to bike touring with the paneers, is is called bike packing. So saddlebags are like, typically most people have like a little bag that goes under their bike saddle where they put in like their bike tools. Just like a fanny pack for your bike. Yeah. Exactly. So now they come in like huge sizes where it's like, um, you know, a foot or more longer. So it's kind of comical seeing these like massive saddlebags, but they're really great for riding off road. Um, And if you have like a mountain bike, one, because a lot of those bikes don't have like the brackets to actually hold a rack. And then two, it's just more stable to have it like under your saddle, but you need to go ultralight. So my interest in like backpacking has kind of dovetailed pretty nicely with this because I, I have a lot of like the lightweight gear to just fit it all in this like giant saddle bag. Yeah. And then you just like head off into off-roading. <laughs> Is that what you did in Costa Rica? So you had a tent and everything with you or what? What'd you do? No? I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't want to know. So I, I so one, I ended up not bringing my bike because it's always like a challenge. Yeah, that um, was going to be the next question is, no. did you have to get a bike there? 
Yeah, so I saw, and then like they were really expensive because Costa Rica's bougie, and so I. This episode brought to you by the Costa Rica Tourism Association. And then I was looking for a secondhand bike, and I couldn't find one. So I saw this bike parked outside of a cafe, and I went inside and just offered the guy and money for it. it. <laughs> and then I stole it. <laughs> so I just gave the guy some money. I'm like, can I buy your bike? And he let me buy his bike. So then um, I put my, I did bring my, I have like a fancy Brooks leather saddle, which is more comfortable. So I put that on it. And then I brought like my giant, my bike packing gear, and I had a bivy sack. So I had the option of I wanted to camp on the beach but then I got like violent food poisoning so I stayed at a hotel and I was going around this island or I guess it was technically like the peninsula for two days and then my plan was to bring the bike back to the mainland but it's this sort of dramatic moment that didn't have to be dramatic but the guy there's only um there's these like water taxis that take you back to the mainland they're kind of just like these speed boats they only fit maybe 10 people and i bought a ticket for me and the bicycle and when i showed up the next morning and the guy just didn't seem very trustworthy he's like oh there's no one else that's going on the boat there's no boat you're gonna have to find another one and there was one other boat it was the only boat leaving the island that day I like run on the beach and I'm like, I need to get on this boat. And they're like, you can get on it, but there isn't room for the bike. I just had to leave the bike behind. And But my saddle was really expensive. So I like, and I couldn't get it off the bike. So I just take the whole seat post in the saddle <laughs> and go like running in the ocean to hop on this boat. And it's with filled with like honeymooners and like dresses and pearl earrings. They're like, who is this weirdo girl? <laughs> All right, you have to tell us how much did you pay for that bike? Uh, I was like a hundred bucks, which, you know, whatever. And I could tell it wasn't that great of a bike, but it had some suspension. It had a triple crank. It was enough for what I needed to get around. And you left it on the side of the beach for someone to find. I shouted to the hotel owner that he should have it because he made me herbal tea. <laughs> Oh, so you paid him back in a yes. sense. You gave him a bike with no seat. You're like, figure out what to do with this. I need to get on a boat. And he's like, God damn Americans. They just think they can do whatever they want. That's why we charge so much when they come to our country. It was the only boat leaving that day. I did not know what else to do. <laughs> what? Sorry, you don't have to justify your horrible actions. That's how all my bike trips are. How often do you do these bike trips? Um, You're doing this all the time? I should tell you about my first bike trip. You absolutely (laughs) should. The first trips are always the best stories. Okay. So I didn't have a bike. (laughs) Sounds like a great bike trip. It's awesome. So I'm going... Was it actually a unicycle trip? (laughs) I I was heading to Glacier National Park. Oh, and there's actually a really cool, like quirk about national parks that's really great for cyclists. So I was heading to Glacier with my friend Melody. Are you about to tell people how to sneak into parks without paying an entrance fee? Is I would that what you're about never to do? do that. I literally would never do that. But I'm going to tell people how to get to bike in the parks without cars. So there's this like sort of interim period in a lot of national parks where they're clearing snow. They allow bikes, but they don't allow cars. You just need to hope they've like cleared all the snow. You don't know how far you're going to be able to bike. So I've, I've always wanted to do this like up in Tuolumne, but I haven't been able to time it correctly. I know one day I will. I know Yellowstone does it, and I think it would be awesome to do that. But I happened to be heading toward Glacier when it was that like two-week window. And you can't plan ahead. Like You just don't know when 
they're gonna plow. They don't know when they're gonna plow. It all depends on the weather. So I knew we couldn't drive across Glacier National Park. So I was like, we'll just bike across it. Like that makes so much sense. So we get there and she had a bike. I rented a bike. I didn't have like the giant like saddlebag or panniers. I didn't even like know what that stuff was. I just had like a backpack. And we're trying, we're asking everyone in the park if the, it's the going to the sun road, which is this, um, it's about a 2000 foot climb that kind of, it goes up a mountain and then back down and it connects the east and western portions of the park. And we're asking everyone, you know, is it plowed through? Is it plowed through? <laughs> Glacier National Park rangers are different than every other rangers. Every other rangers at different parks are like, don't leave your car. Like, you will die. Don't do anything. And they were kind of like shrug, like, uh, we don't know if it's plowed. You'll figure it out. You'll be fine. Is it because they're so close to Canada? <laughs> yeah, ride your bike, eh? <laughs> so we're just like, okay, we're just going to go for it. And we start biking. And it's really hard you know, we have like our backpacks on and it's the steep climb and it's getting later and later. And I'm, it's funny. I can be like uptight about other things in my life, but with the outdoors, I'm like, oh, it's going to work out. And my friend's getting a little nervous because it's starting to get a little dark. I'm like, we're going to be fine. And we get to the top right as the sun is setting and the road isn't plowed through. There's all this snow and we know they're plowing it from both sides. So there's this like moment where like putting on our down jackets, it's dark. We're turning on our headlights. We're like, do we turn around? Do we go forward? What do we do? And I'm like, we'll just go forward. Like I, I, it's going to work out. <laughs> and so we're like, could you tell where the road was? No, it was, <laughs> it was just like all this snow. So we're like trying to push our bikes over all this snow, this wall of snow, trying to see the other side of the, the park and the road. Is this at night or is this oh, the next day? Oh, it's dark now. Okay, it so is the, dark yeah. and cold. It like totally switched in just a really short amount of time. And Melody's freaking out and I'm like, we'll be fine. And then I see a goat. I see these eyes and it's a goat and like mountain goats are my spirit animals. I'm like, we're totally going to be fine. And suddenly the road appears like it had been plowed through. So we hit the road, but we have to descend like an hour in the dark and the cold. And we're kind of worried about bears. Um, But we make it to the other side. Like it's almost 1 a.m. We're exhausted and we just collapse in the first campsite. We see this ranger wakes us up in the morning and he's like, you have to pay. This isn't the bike in part you're in the wrong spot you need to pay and we're like oh god we're sorry we just biked in from the west side he's like you did what you did what are you serious are you guys crazy (laughs) we're like pretty much it was awesome. <laughs> and then you, I'm assuming the rest of it was easy sailing. Then? Nope. No, nope. it was More really, the same? no. So then like the next half, you know, it's Glacier National Park's big. So we had to like bike the second day and it was all these rollers and we're super sore, but we're troopers. So we, we bike and camp the second day. And then the issue the third day was one of the rangers told us like, oh, we'll be fine biking sort of on the southern end of the park. But it's this, like, honestly, like a freeway. Cars are going, like, 60 miles an hour. There's no shoulder. Like, we will die. We are not going to do it. So we're like, okay, I guess we're going to have to, like, hitchhike. And we're trying to With get... your bikes? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Two you girls need very specific t- types of cars to pick you up. Then. Exactly. So... We find these people with a truck. We're just like asking them if there's like a shuttle and trying to feel them out. And you can tell the wife is like, you were taking those girls, honey. (laughs) (laughs) And so they throw our bikes and stuff in the car. And they have this dog and it was half coyote and Melody's spirit animal is a coyote. (laughs) So (laughs) we were like, this is meant to be. (laughs) How how did these animals become your respective spirit animals? 
They they just choose you. Uh, how do you know you were chosen by a mountain goat? Um, I just know. Mountain goats, they're stubborn. And they figure things out one way or the other. So you're, so you're saying you're stubborn? That's why? Oh, that's the only way I get anything done in the outdoors is um, I give up. I, I never give up, except the one time I did give up. But, like, usually I never give up. Oh, tell us about the one time you gave up. My friend Donald. And I'm going to edit out everything else in the episode except for the story of the one time you gave up. Donald never lets me forget it because... I'm always like, oh, I'm so stubborn. I will always just keep going, keep going. And he's like, not that one time. I'm like, shut up, Donald. <laughs> this is like my first winter mountaineering trip. And I was up Mount Whitney. And so my friend Donald like posted on Facebook, like, does anyone have any crampons I can borrow? And I was like, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm coming. <laughs> he's like, okay. <laughs> so we rented crampons and I borrowed an ice axe and we head up Mount Whitney we're heading up on Saturday, and I'm like, it's me and three dudes, and I'm like, hey, guys, it's starting to snow. Maybe we should not head up Mount Whitney in a snowstorm. And they're like, no, no, you're crazy. Like, we're going. And I'm like, all right, I'm coming, too, just so I can say I told you so. So I go, and the plan was to hike up at, it's I guess it's like Upper Boy Scout Lake, the second camp. But we're hiking, and we only make it to the first camp because we get super snowed in. It's just coming down. So we all get into our tents, and we're, like, stuck in our tents for, like, 16 hours as the snow just comes down. I'm sharing a tent with a dude I never met. He's really nice, but he, like, keeps farting the whole time. I knew that's what you were going to say. <laughs> I knew that's what you were going And so we wake up the next morning. It's later than we had wanted to start. We're at a camp lower than we wanted to start. And there's all this fresh snow that we need to break trail. So... But we head up. We make it to Upper Boy Scout Lake. Um, Brian is his like feet are starting to get numb, and he doesn't feel comfortable in his boots, so he drops out. The last water source was frozen over at Upper Boy Scout Lake, so we can't get any more water. Some people had stopped. There's just us and one other group, and the other group had like stopped to melt snow. We didn't bring our stove, so we just keep going forward. Um, we head up the chute. You know, this isn't sounding like a story where you gave up. This is starting to sound like a story where you made a wise decision. <laughs> so I want to see if this is going to change. So we head up the chute and we make Donald and our other friend, we, we make it to the top of the chute. And then our friend turns around and suddenly it's just me and Donald. And then this like random Marine shows up and he had like melted snow. So it's me, Donald and a Marine. And we're like, okay, it's just like... It's less than two miles to the peak. Was he was he was he in his fatigues? Is that <laughs> how you know he was a marine? I don't know how it came up, but he totally carried himself like one. He was really nice. He was the nicest, nicest guy. And he had tried he just like apparently tries to climb Whitney every winter, I guess, and he hadn't made it. So he was like, you know, kind of really committed to making it. I thought you were going to say he tries every Wednesday. <laughs> I was just picturing this this long guy in fatigues who just hangs out at Whitney Portal. Wednesday comes along, he tries, but for some reason he can't do it. And then next Wednesday he tries again. Marines. The Sisyphus of Mount Whitney. Marines are dedicated, man. Maybe. Maybe he does every Wednesday in winter. Yeah, so we got less than two miles to go. And I do not feel so good because I don't have any water. I ran out. We're at altitude. We're at 14,000 feet, and I know I have altitude sickness. I'm just like, I feel a little nauseous. I suddenly say, I was like, this is so weird, but I feel like I want to cry. Like, there's all this tension, and I just feel like in my head, I just want to cry. And the Marine's like, oh, it's altitude sickness. Whatever you do, 
don't think about dead puppies. And I was like, dead puppies? What? I know. He's like, don't think of sad things. And we're hiking along. And I'm like, dead puppies? That's so sad. And we're hiking. And then I start, like, tearing up. And I just feel so awful. And the sun is setting. And I just stop. And I'm like, I can't do this. The sun is dark. I don't have any water. I'm feeling really sad about dead puppies. I'm turning around. And we're, like, a mile from the summit. And, like... Donald and the Marine turn and look at me and they're like, okay, we'll go down too. And I insisted, I wanted them to keep going ahead. I'm like, I'll be fine. But we all turned around. No one made it to the summit that day. I had the so best. you had to try again next Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> I did have like the best glissade ever. Glissading down the, I don't know if you've ever, glissading down the Whitney chute is like, it's just like flying down this slide. It was all fresh snow. That alone, that was better than the summit. <laughs> I had so much fun. I just want to say this Marine was probably a really nice guy. He should never be a psychologist. <laughs> terrible, terrible at that. Oh, whatever you do, don't think about sad things like dead puppies. I think he intentionally was Yeah, he was looking for an excuse yeah. to bail. That's why he, that's why he does, doesn't make it every Wednesday. <laughs> and if you go there right now... Whitney Portal, there's a Marine in fatigues. <laughs> Today is Wednesday also, so there you go. he's probably on his way back down right now, thinking about puppies. Still didn't make it. Dead, dead puppies. <laughs> so I think that was a wise decision. To, yeah, I mean, yeah. that that doesn't sound so much like a give up. Give up is like, hey, we're doing something completely reasonable, and I don't want to do it anymore. I'm not going to do it. Maybe you guys shouldn't have been going anyway. Yeah. You had altitude sickness. Yeah. You didn't have a way to acquire water. water yeah, yeah, you guys should have turned around a long yeah. time before. Well, it's, yeah, totally. I'm glad we went as far as we did. But So next time he tells you that, you tell him, shut up. I, so I didn't give up. I made a wise decision, <laughs> idiot. It's funny. Like, I think I told you I'm in a mountaineering book club and like all the like history behind like people, the turnaround time. And I can't remember the name of the guy, but there's like, this is like legendary story of a guy who was like 15 minutes from the top of Everest, I think. And he's just like, well, it's the turnaround time. Time to go back. Like, I never would have done that. I don't know who would have. But he's sort of held up justifiably, I think, is this like really positive example of at the turnaround time, you turn around. Well, this is the thing. You could be 15 minutes from the top. But that doesn't mean you're only going to add 15 minutes to your time. Yeah. You know, so exactly. if you're 15 minutes from the top. I could easily turn into now it's an hour later than yeah. you were supposed to turn around. Yeah. And that turnaround time, that's supposed to be like, ideally you should be turning around sooner than that. Yeah. So if you're going past that. It's really hard. And I can't imagine, honestly, even on Whitney, when it was horrible conditions and as you helped me feel like I was justified in turning <laughs> around. I, you know, I just thought about all those people who like pay, you know, a zillion dollars to be guided up Everest. And like, I totally understand why they don't want to turn around. I was like, I had this moment where I'm like, I'm going to go to the top. I'm going to go for it. And I was like, this is stupid. I've, I invested a weekend in this trip. <laughs> I didn't even know I was going until a few days ago. And I still just felt that like that mountain fever. Yeah, I mean, that one time you go for those that 15 minutes to get that summit might mean you don't get 100 more summits yeah. because you die on the descent. Yeah, exactly. And it's so funny. There's just so there's so many historical examples of that where people just don't turn around. And yeah, they and then they never summon another mountain again. So we're going to leave everyone with that. Happy thought. Dead puppies, dead mountaineers. <laughs> I'm glad to see you. you could bring us up to this high point and strike us down. So what's in the future for you? What are you looking at? Oh, there's a million before, things. Before you move away to 
Herzegovina <laughs> or wherever you're going to move to next? So I bought a folding kayak and I want to take it on the expo line, which goes um, out to Santa Monica. And then I want to like kayak it down to Long Beach and then take the blue line back up with it. I think that'd be cool. And this weekend I'm supposed to bike up into the Angelas and I might camp at Chalau. I still want to bike around Cuba <laughs> one of these days. And I want to go to Nicaragua with a machete and <laughs> look at the flora there. You may have a little difficulty getting that on the airplane. <laughs> You're definitely going to need to check it. <laughs> Although maybe not in Nicaragua. Maybe, they'll, maybe, they'll be, maybe everyone will have a, a machete on that. <laughs> so what would you like to leave everyone with when they sit down now and they think about Grabovsky? <laughs> what do you want them to remember? Besides that you are an ingenue dilettante urban planner. You know, I was just reading this Edward Abbey quote, and I know Edward Abbey is it's almost like the cliche of outdoor quotes, but... It really resonated with me and sort of my balance between being an urban planner and an outdoor dilettante ingenue. And the quote basically says, he says actually be like a half-hearted enthusiast when you're out there trying to save the world. You know, I think it's really important to, to get out there and try to make a difference. But you also need to save a part of yourself for adventures and for enjoying nature while you can. And I think just kind of striking that balancing act between dedicating yourself to you know being a steward to the environment but don't forget to have fun so if people want to know what you do what you're up to is there anywhere people could go i know you've got an instagram i have an instagram what other stuff do you have are there any places you want to recommend people go like Um, if, if you have a goal here like to to get people to care more about their community and you want them to go to a website and learn how to do that why don't you tell me where, where you want to send people? Okay, so, well, my Instagram's Lauren underscore Grababrewski. You can follow my adventures there. You're such a frat boy. I know. <laughs> such a frat boy. As far as, gosh, where would I encourage people to go? I would encourage people to get outside in their own neighborhood. You know, it's we all know about the bigger causes, but there's lots of causes just in your own backyard that you should pay attention to and that's where you have the potential to make the biggest difference so get involved in your community people and do something and don't be a lazy <laughs> ass that throws your trash on the ground and then just uses up all the resources and hogs everything that's what Grabowski would like you to know go help your neighbor ride a bicycle <laughs> make some tea for people when you see them on the side of the road oh I didn't even get to talk about my t-shirt do we have time you if you want to talk about okay. your t-shirt we have time to talk however much we want so I wear this t-shirt for all the people on the podcast to see oh, okay so so uh everyone at home or in your car or on your bike or wherever you are right now close your eyes and lauren is going to describe her t-shirt <laughs> and you will imagine it i actually kind of forgot that i wore this but i was like this is what i need to wear for a podcast for everyone to see so if you close your eyes i'm wearing a vintage light blue shirt and it, it is... looks like you cut off the collar <laughs> i did cut off the collar I felt like I was being slowly strangled by a midget, so <laughs> I need a little room. <laughs> little person. <laughs> uh, it is written in a 70s era vintage font because it's a 70s era shirt. Um, it has a picture of a mountain and it says, a woman's place is on top, Annapurna. And this... And Annapurna is a mountain, if anyone listening doesn't know that. It's, thank you. It's, um, I think, the sixth tallest in the world. It's in the 
Himalayas in Nepal. The shirt was designed in the 70s to fund the first all-women's expedition um, in the Himalayas. And it was led by my hero, Arlene Blum. She's a female mountaineer and a really accomplished scientist. She climbed Denali. She was an accomplished climber mountaineer, and she was trying to get on a Himalayan expedition. They wouldn't let her. (laughs) The prologue to her book called A Woman's Place, Annapurna. The prologue is a letter that she received from someone who she said, hey, I'd I'd like to be on your expedition. And he writes back, oh, you have all the experience. We'd love to have you, but it'd be kind of weird just having one woman. Like, so bloody sorry, can't be on our trip. And Arlene's like, I'm going to start my own expedition. And there are all these challenges. The um, American Alpine Club were a little bit reluctant to sponsor them. And they couldn't get funding so one of the women designed this kind of like provocative t-shirt that epitomized like second wave feminism and they I think they raised almost two hundred thousand dollars just selling these t-shirts all these all these other women were really happy to support them on this expedition and I love that they kind of turned like their weakness into into an opportunity that they're like okay we're going to embrace that we're an all-women's team doing this Uh, and her book is it was my selection for the for the Mountaineering Book Club. It's a really amazing book, and you read about this this all-women's team that's attempting... You know, I think up until the K2 accident, Annapurna was considered the most... the deadliest mountain in in the world. Um, did a trek in Nepal, the Annapurna, Annapurna Base Camp trek, and at the base, there's all these memorials. It's really haunting, all these memorials to the mountaineers that lost their lives, um, either trying to climb it or just the Sherpas, you know, hauling the gear up to it. But they they led this expedition, and they they made it. Two of them made it to the top. Two of them did not make it off the mountain. So the other link that Lauren would like to add <laughs> is a link to that book, so that all of you can read that book and appreciate. And maybe maybe there's a picture of the. the yeah, you can the order these. The you book. can order them today. Yeah, still. so that you can know what it looks like. That's definitely. That is the link I'd like people to go to, and I'd encourage them to, if they don't read the book, at least, you know, learn about Arlene Blum and her work. She's gone on to do a lot of work for the Nepalese people, which I think a lot of mountaineers, they go there, and then they get really intrigued and interested in supporting the Sherpas, which I think is great. And so she has the annual Himalayan festival um, up in NorCal, so check her out. Any other articles of clothing that you're wearing that we need to discuss? <laughs> Are there any particular shoes that you need the audience to imagine? <laughs> Should we mention the earrings you're wearing that were those flower petals or Turquoise. something? It's my spirit stone. Oh, she she has her spirit stone, <laughs> blue. It kind of looks like a sunflower, a turquoise sunflower. These are my grandmother's, yeah, viewing audience. <laughs> I didn't explain to Lauren that audio, audio podcast didn't have a video element, I guess. All right, so does that cover everything? Everything. That's your entire life All encapsulated into just over an hour? Yep. <laughs> so that's it. That's everything you ever needed to know. About Lauren Grabowski. <laughs> uh, we didn't even mention that you're Polish and that your name is actually Grabowski. <laughs> we didn't talk about that at all. We can talk about it. <laughs> we can talk about, um, yeah, the, the the legacy of Grabowski's being badasses. <gasps> oh, there are two things I forgot. Two things I forgot. I forgot to ask you to make a Polish joke every 20 minutes. <laughs> 
and I forgot. See, and you told me about this thing when we did uh, teacups a while back, and then you didn't mention it in here, and you didn't mention it as one of your links, the the Grabowski song. Okay. Yeah, so when you go to the website, you'll be able to see this The Grabowski good Shuffle. Yeah. Good. Oh, it's an amazing, it's a, it's a life-changing video. You will define your life as before and after you saw the Grabowski Shuffle video. And that was your family, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we, Mike Dicka wrote that song about us. <laughs> right, so we've reached that part of the show now where the audience doesn't know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> so it's a good time for us to wrap this up, for you to get on your bike so you can bike back to whatever part of L.A. you're going to go to today. I'm going to go grab a brewski dark. at Eagle Rock Brewery. Oh. <laughs> And I'm going to go see if I can figure out where my car is. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming over here and doing this. Thanks, Jason. It's fun to get outside. <laughs> so earlier in the conversation, Lauren mentions an Ed Abbey quote that she attempts to paraphrase. So in my due diligence, I have used the power of the internet to find that exact precise quote. And here to deliver that quote to you is Butcher Bird's chief thespian, Michael B.W. Schlein. One final paragraph of advice. Do not burn yourselves out. Be as I am, a reluctant enthusiast, a part-time crusader, a half-hearted fanatic. Save the other half for yourselves and your lives for pleasure and adventure. It is not enough to fight for the land. It is even more important to enjoy it while you can, while it's still here. So get out and hunt and fish and mess around with your friends. Ramble out yonder and explore the forests. Climb the mountains, bag the peaks, run the rivers. Breathe deep of that yet sweet and lucid air. Sit quietly for a while and contemplate the precious stillness, the lovely, mysterious, and awesome space Enjoy yourselves. Keep your brain in your head and your head firmly attached to the body, the body active and alive. And I promise you this much. I promise you this one sweet victory over our enemies, over those desk-bound men and women with their hearts in a safe deposit box and their eyes hypnotized by desk calculators. I promise you this. You will outlive the bastards. And so now I want all of you to stop what you're doing. Take a moment. Take your hands off the steering wheel. Put down... The razor, stop buttoning your pants, stop whatever you are doing, and give Michael Schlain a round of well-deserved applause. And so now, some updates about Miss Lauren Grabowski, who is the person who inspired us to have that exciting reading. She has recently biked up a Sierra Mountain, Lone Pine to Whitney Portal, the number 13 hardest climb in America, on a bicycle. And she's volunteering for Carless California, which will help improve transit connections to park spaces to improve park access for urban dwellers, especially those without car access. So those are a couple of things that she's been up to since she and I spoke a couple of months ago. And on top of that, she also helped me shoot some 360 video of a canyoneering route called the Seven Teacups earlier this summer. And that will hopefully be cut together very soon. And when that happens, I will mention it here on the show so that you may throw some virtual reality goggles on your head and pretend that you too are sliding down waterfalls and leaping into cold Sierra mountain pools. 
And now it's that time, time to go to gogetoutside.com slash podcast. Find this episode, episode 40, Lauren Grabowski, and look at the copious photos that will be there and click on all of the luscious links. You will find links to Lauren Grabowski's Instagram page, links to that Grabowski shuffle video that we mentioned earlier, which you must take a moment to watch and enjoy the wonderful 80s-rific music video that this is. And then there's also a blog post about a high fashion project involving fashion and the outdoors together, featuring women in outdoor settings in fashionable clothing, which features Lauren Grabowski. So click on that link. There are links to the iNaturalist app that she mentioned and links to the Arlene Blum wiki, the woman she discussed here at the show, and links to Arlene Blum's website where you too could purchase that Annapurna t-shirt if you so desire to do so. And hey, you're already on the internet, so why don't you go ahead and send us an email, go at butcherbirdstudios.com. Let us know how you crave more wonderful readings from Michael Schlain. And if email will not allow you to get what is in your heart out to us, you can give us a call, 818-925-0106. You can leave us a three-minute message attempting to capture in words your love for Michael Schlain. I have attempted many times to capture in words that love, and it is impossible. Because you're not done with the internet yet. No, no. You have agreed to listen to the show, and so now you have all sorts of homework to do. Go to Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you consume this piece of media. Make sure you subscribe to the show, rate the show, review the show, and please, please share the show with someone you like or someone you dislike, someone who will enjoy this show or someone whose day you would like to ruin. Next time on the show, David Angel. He's a caver, canyoneer, host of RopeWiki.com, aerial bartender, and most importantly, lover of red t-shirts. Come back November 16th. David Angel, see you then.